0: Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. I've stopped doing these intros because I find them to be a bit of a faff, but I wanted to do one here quickly to give you a heads up on a couple of things before you start listening to this week's guest, Brad Inslee, talk about flying the F-111 during the Vietnam War. In fact, this is the first of three interviews with Brad, so stay tuned for the others. So what are the announcements? Firstly, because of factors beyond my direct control, I've not been able to record the concluding interviews with Marco McCaffrey and with Stinger but rest assured they'll come soon. I'll wrap up my conversations with Marco by going over his time as a UPT squadron commander, and I'm hoping to get into as much detail as I can with Stinger about his current role flying the F-15E Strike Eagle. Secondly, I have some fantastic guests booked in for June, and they include General Dave Deptula, who was one of the chief architects of the Operation Desert Storm Air War, Nick Pope, who ran the Ministry of Defence's UFO Desk, and he now operates as a freelance subject matter expert in unexplained aerial phenomena, and Mike Napier, a former RAF Tornado IDS pilot who is now also a successful aviation writer. I've got four more guests pencilled in for July, but I'll share news of those when confirmed. Thirdly, and finally, I now have a Discord channel, thanks to Scotty Lee, thanks Scotty, I post my forthcoming interviews there and have an active program of inviting questions for me to ask my guests on your behalf. So I'll put a link in the description. Uh, take a look, head over, say hi, and check out the Ask Me Anything channels, and you'll be able to post your questions there. Anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, I'll leave you with Brad. Enjoy. Brad, thanks for coming on 10% True. It's, it's great to speak to you.
1: Good to speak for you, too.
0: So, so Brad, you are. Uh, it, it may embarrass you, but maybe not too much of an exaggeration to say you're you're Mister F one eleven. You're the high time F one eleven guy. Are, you, are there any wizards who have more time than you? No, uh,
1: most of the wizards have actually less than three thousand. But uh, there, I think there are a few that have about three thousand.
0: And you're five thousand and something. Yeah,
1: five thousand fifty six point nine. <laughs> I, I looked that up. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, we had one uh pilot get 4500 and somebody told me that the Aussies there was an Aussie that was past me but uh when I went to the closing ceremony in 2010 in December uh I met him and he only had like 3700 hours so okay. he wasn't uh, that close.
0: Can we talk first a little bit about the TFX program and then we'll talk a little bit about the F-111 going into Southeast Asia. So I know, I know you you've said to me, you flew the airplane in Southeast Asia in 1972. Um, so there's a little bit of history um, prior to that, that you may not have had firsthand experience of, but you know, for anybody who's wondering what the F-111 is and how it came about, why it was what it was, um, you know, do you, do you have any views on the TFX program and, um, and how the the F-111 came to be?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> the, uh McNamara wanted to bring one airplane to fill all roles for the Air Force and Navy, and he was going to make an interceptor and uh, low-level interdiction, as well as a Navy airplane, and uh, he was forced them all on board. Uh, The first design competition that they had, uh, nobody had a decent design, so the Air Force and Navy decided that General Dynamics and Boeing had acceptable or good possibilities to work from. So they went, uh, had a second uh, round of uh, designs and they determined that they were not acceptable, but they liked the Boeing design the best, both uh, the Navy and the Air Force. So they sent them both back to refine their designs. And when they came back the third time, once again they decided they weren't quite what they wanted. But again, they thought Boeing would have the best design. So the fourth design came in, and the Navy and the Air Force both selected Boeing to build the TFX, a tactical fighter experimental. And McNamara said, no, we're going to go with the General Dynamics design, and his uh, rationale was that they had more in common. And, uh, of course, they tried to build the B model for the Navy, and they never could get it light enough for the carrier. And that's why they went actually with a side-by-side seating, because it allowed them to shorten the nose on the airplane. But uh, they ended up canceling the Navy program, <clears throat> and they they went with Grumman for the F14, and they actually allowed allowed them to build an airplane that was better for air to air because of the uh, twin tails. They found out that the 111 would depart controlled flight above about 25 degrees angle of attack because of fuselage blanking of the tail, and the 111 got. At least fifty percent of its lift from the fuselage, as opposed to the wings. So that's why the F eighteen, which gets has fuselage lift, the F fifteen, which has fuselage lift, all went with twin tails. And uh, the one eleven really didn't stall; it just uh, yawed, diverged because it was still getting lift, but it would lose directional control, and then it was just about impossible to recover from a spin. So we were kind of limited to – they like to keep you at 18 degrees angle of attack. But uh, I have been – I've seen 22, 23 degree angle of attack, and the thing was still flying okay. Test pilots I talked to said anywhere above 22, it could depart depending on the stability of the air. Anyway, after they built it, the first uh, airplane, when they tried to fly it, they couldn't – couldn't get the engines to go to full mill power because compressor stalling. And uh, they had to put translating cows on it. Wouldn't get enough air in the engine to get full power. And uh, anything below 100 knots, the translating cows would slide forward, to get more air in. And they had a splitter plate to keep the, use the boundary layer air from coming into the intakes just like the F-4 did. The uh, later airplanes, FB, the uh, E model and the D model and the F model all went with blow-in doors. They moved the intakes out four inches on each side. That, that allowed them to take rid of the splitter plate. And they had doors that sucked in on the side of the, where the translating cows would normally get the proper amount of air. So, the A model was the only one that had translating cows where the cows physically moved forward to give more air. That was a little more complex. It actually made it a slightly uh, more aerodynamic airplane, though, because the fuselage was narrower. They had one FB that was taken off the A line. That's the first FB test airplane. And for the whole tour of its life, they had that one. FB with translating cows. The rest of them all had blow indoors. And I think it was in 66 or 67, they decided to send them to Southeast Asia to test them out. Now, they're talking to the crews, they didn't really know the airplane. They weren't comfortable flying it. They didn't understand uh, exactly how it worked. Uh, they had a Navy crew. Uh, Navy pilot who was flying it. He liked, from what I understand, he liked to hand-fly the TFR at 100 feet. And uh, he was one of the losses, and they figured he probably went in trying to do that. Uh, the F- RF-4 had TFR also, but it wasn't coupled to the flight control, so they just had to fly it manually all the time. Uh, they, they didn't go below 500 normally. Anyway, they lost, uh, three airplanes and, uh, one of them was in Thailand. And, uh, maybe when we're talking funny stories, I can tell you about that. Uh, they lost the Navy guy, the t- two in Thailand punched out and I knew both of those guys. Uh, the other loss, I don't remember what they lost, but they lost low level.
0: But it was a oh, – okay, no, I think you were going to go there. I, I was going to say it was it was sort of a – I think they only flew 55 sorties or so, didn't they? And uh, three aircraft down in 55 sorties. That's a sort of catastrophic um, baptism of fire.
1: What um, they didn't have – they didn't have very many airplanes at that time. I think they're probably getting several a month at that time. But the guys that said they didn't have hardly any airplanes. I mean, they took most of the airplanes with them. So they really didn't understand what was going on uh, with the airplane. Didn't not know a lot of the faults of the airplane.
0: Just just on that then. So so what's the what, what would the process have been? And again, you're you're you know upfront about this is being this is your experience based on talking to other guys who were there because this predates your time in the airplane. But what what sort of faults were there, and, and why were they not discovered when the airplane was being sort of flown stateside?
1: Uh, well, you know, like the one that went down in Thailand, actually, the, some servo on the tail uh, was not made properly, according to specs, apparently. And it came apart. So the tail was basically flopping around and it wasn't uh, connected to the, you know, the stick didn't do anything for him as far as uh, the stab was going. Uh, talking to Sandy Marquart and uh, Joe Hodges, uh, who were flying that airplane. Uh, they were just flying along at medium altitude in Thailand, approaching Laos, where they were going to let down. And the airplane uh, just started flopping around. Sandy said he uh, got it under control with rudder initially, and then it just departed. And he couldn't get it back. So they punched out. Uh, they buried the airplane on site. Actually, they, they didn't do a, you know, didn't take it apart and look at it. Uh, They had a airplane do the same thing in the States a few months later and they were able to recover all the parts and they found out what happened. So they went back and dug up their airplane because they buried it, dug it up and found once they knew what they're looking for, they found what the same cause. So they grounded the airplane. So they got it fixed. So they spent a lot of time in Thailand, just sitting there with the airplanes and doing some training missions when they were allowed to fly. They didn't know if like, I think it's think 55 combat missions sounds about right. Mm. I'd for, forgotten exactly what it was. And then they had a, they got back to the States and they had a wing come off in the States. And, uh, that was on a rock, low-altitude rocket pass, so the guys were killed, obviously. And uh, <clears throat> the that grounded the airplanes while they inspected all the wing carry-through boxes. It's a big brown cylinder that the wings pivoted on, and that was the only one that was found to have a flaw. But it had a flaw all the way through the one part of the the ring that was not detected. So it was going to come off sometime. Just happened to be unfortunate for them that they were at real low altitude. They, when the wing came off, of course, they rolled it, went into the ground. And then they started flying again, early 71, probably. And uh, then I came back there in 72. Uh, there was a lot of things that people didn't understand about the airplane. Uh, they lost lost one in sixty eight or sixty nine to uh, aft fuel distribution. Uh, the crew knew that their fuel wasn't feeding from the aft tank because uh, fuel pumps were either in op or blew a circuit breaker or something. And uh, <clears throat> they didn't understand at the time that with nine thousand fuel trapped, nine thousand pounds of fuel trapped in the back, once you burn down below a certain Point, you had to use a lot faster speed. So they came in on a normal approach. The airplane pitched up. There was an Aussie and a, a Navy guy in the airplane, and they lost it right on final. Are they get out? Yeah, they got out okay. Uh, a friend of mine was on the flight line, and he, he was just got an assignment to 111. <laughs> he showed up, walked down to see what the airplane looked like, and he watched that. That's the first thing he saw was the airplane punch out. He went down and volunteered to go back to Southeast Asia 105. So when he came back, he got it. He got the assignment again. So, it didn't do <laughs> him any good.
0: <laughs> Can you just talk, Brad, just just a little bit about then the, the mission of the airplane? So so uh, and some of the things that uh, made it special. What? what um, uh- yeah,
1: well, the, the uh, airplane really. Was it at, was at best low level at night? Uh, we uh, we f- we could drop bombs anywhere from two hundred up to a uh, thousand feet on the auto TFR. Uh, the real limitation was the weapons. We didn't have the balloons like they got later. We tried to drop at four hundred eighty knots, which was at slow. You know you don't like to be that slow, but. Didn't have much choice because the weapons fins could come out. They had a, what they called Mark eighty two Snake Eyes, what we used most of the time. And when they when you when they released the bomb, it had a long uh, wire that went through the fins. And when the bombs fell far enough away that the fins wouldn't contact the airplane, then the fins would blow open. If you're going too fast, the fins could break off. So. I think the fins were limited to either 500 or 480, and they wanted us to drop at 480 maximum. And it's possible we lost one airplane to, to that downtown. They were either fragged by their own bombs or they got shot. We don't know. They were hitting the railroad depot right on right downtown. That crew got, actually got out. Uh, they tried dropping Mark 84s, but 1,000 feet doesn't give you clearance for a Mark 84 dropping level because they were slick. They didn't have any retarding devices on them. So they had to do a climb above 1,700 feet, and the bombs come off, and you had to do a maneuver to get back down again. Because getting above, you get 1,000 feet or above, you're starting to get into where they can see you with SAMs and stuff. And uh, we lost one crew doing that, and that was the last time we dropped them. We had lots of problems with them not going off, too, I guess, uh, from... Some of the guys, they dropped their bonds. And they did, didn't go off when they hit the
0: ground. So, so, so it, they were
1: all scared. <laughs>
0: I bet. What was the idea then, um, you know, particularly around um, the, that deployment to Southeast Asia, sending the airplane there, that it was some kind of precision striker? I mean, it, it was going to operate on its own, not part of a big formation, which was what you'd have with the F-105s and the F-4s.
1: Yeah, that, uh, I tell you what, when we got there, we were getting targets. I remember my first target was military barracks. It was empty military barracks, target of no military significance. And we're going, why are we risking our lives to get these targets? Well, really, all they wanted us to do was force the Vietnamese to shut the lights off because they were running around with lighted trucks at night because nobody could bomb them. And when we started showing up, they started doing that. And then they found out we could actually hit something. Mm-hmm. So they started uh, giving us better targets. And in linebacker two, from the 18th of December on, we were hitting, after a couple nights of B-52 losses, we started hitting uh, SAM sites, airfields, things like that, communication centers to try and give the B-52s uh, a better chance of survival. And on Christmas Eve, I remember uh, we we didn't have very many sorties, but all of them were against SAM sites or airfields trying to put them out of action for the
0: B-52s. Can you talk about the process then of, um, at night, going in and striking with precision that kind of target? How did you do it?
1: Well, uh, normally we flew every other day, just to give you a rest between that chance to plan the target and we would uh, go in uh, decide how we wanted to, uh, uh, strike the target, what defenses they had. Uh, and we, we would do some coordination with other crews. If we were going similar targets with similar TOTs, we didn't want to run over each other. uh, we initially started letting down at the Vietnamese border, but we found that was just wasted fuel and exposed you more. And uh, I guess, you know, we lost an airplane on the first night. The line, uh, linebacker one, when we got there. They tried to do a record for employment, deployment to employment. They had crew stations along the way to move the airplanes on. Uh, they flew 14 hours to Guam and then Guam to Takli and they had crews already planned missions there. They took off and we lost lost actually our most experienced crew in our squadron, our most experienced pilot. He had been in the first one, the first deployment. And uh, the other crews, several of them came back and said we almost hit the ground. And it had to do with uh, raindrops. Uh, we're attenuating the TFR and the attack radar just go blank. So anyway, we uh, we started getting in closer because they really didn't have any threats outside the delta except air to air, and normally they didn't bother us. Uh, and we'd either you know either normally you if you're in the delta delta itself, we would attack uh, usually west to east or east to west depending on which you felt most comfortable with that day. This is linebacker two mostly because linebacker one we kind of didn't get right downtown. Uh, of course a lot of crew coordination the uh, train following radar but the whistle had a just as important a job you know because they're looking at uh, the train, make sure you're not you not getting a. You can tell on the scope whether you're going to clear something or not. The tr- e scope was just a, had an etched, etched line, and you had to keep the train below that. And of course, you had clearance setting planes from uh, 200, 300, 400, 500, 750, and a thousand. And you had uh, soft, medium, and hard ride. Hard ride was really disturbing. I mean, it was. Disorienting, I should say. Uh, Soft ride, on the other hand, was ballooning a little bit. So almost everybody used medium ride. And the threats, we always figured the ground was the biggest threat. Because uh, we discovered the TFR blanking that first night. So they actually... When we got there, they started having us everybody fly a local sortie and go out and try to find rain, and uh, so you could experience it. And uh, I actually, on a combat sortie in North Vietnam, we actually had that happen to us.
0: Can, can you describe what, what, what that is? So, so you said it's attenuating the radar. So, is it is it the rain making the radar think that it's it's solid ground right ahead of it?
1: Well, actually it, it makes the radar think there's nothing ahead of it. It's like, uh, you're over water or sand desert. Uh, the TFR, as long as it had returns, it didn't care what the radar altimeter said. And, uh, it would, uh, well, I shouldn't say it didn't, it, it did, but not, uh, so it would go your scope would go blank and it would revert to the radar altimeter to give you the altitude it wanted. And uh, so when you get that scope blanking on both scopes, you've got uh, no ground returns, so it's going to the radar altimeter. And guys, we're you know, we're getting 25, 50 foot on the radar altimeter and when they're pulling. Uh, we happened to happen to us. We had, we, we were the first crew to run into the thunderstorms. We had thunderstorms overhauled all of, uh, North Vietnam, basically. And we were TFing in, in the mountains. And we were, we were actually at the lowest point along the route. And the highest point along the route was in front of us. <laughs> and we just got scope blanking instantly. So we pulled the nose up, lit the afterburners and, uh, We popped out of the clouds at about 15,000 feet. Well, I know that the uh, mountain, we could, when we popped out of the clouds, the mountain peak that we were worried about was right in front of us, just barely above it. So we were pretty close. And we were pretty slow at that point because we were climbing as fast as we could. We considered jettisoning the bombs, but we didn't do it. We attempted to continue to the target. But we couldn't see the ground on our attack radar, so we couldn't do a train-following letdown. And uh, so we turned around, hit an alternate target, called back the command post and told them that probably ought to cancel the flights. And a couple other people had the same problem. Interesting thing about that to me was we got almost to the delta, and we never got any enemy radar indications. So I guess they couldn't see through it, look at us as we couldn't see, look at them. Um, but basically a lot of communication between the, uh, two crew members when you're low level. One interesting thing, we, we did a lot of crossing the Red River north of Yen Bai, which was well, like kind of a north end of Thud Ridge. If You're familiar with the area there. And there was one guy, one AAA gunner that always fired. And we kind of used him as a reference point to make sure we were on course. Really, so every time a one eleven would go by, yeah, okay, he's about ten miles south of us, so we're in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> he he shot all the time.
0: Uh, that was visual, or sort of audio or sound sound thing. I,
1: I don't know what he was using, but as soon as soon as we one eleven would get close, he'd start shooting straight up, and you know, you like he's way over there, but we could see him. Yeah, it, we're we're about in the right place.
0: And are you using, was there an INS in the airplane to help you navigate?
1: We had an analog INS and you had to handset every coordinates. We only had one offset capability. And that soon became obvious limitation for us. And uh, while we were over there, they started, they came up with a mod and brought them over and started modding the airplanes I think we had uh, six offset capability after that. They put a little box in there. And you could load the offsets before you took off. And then you could uh, – you still had your offset manual one on the INS. So, and you had to – each turn point, you had to sit there and run the things to the next one. It wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. You couldn't uh, – you had some presets – but that just got you close. It wasn't exact. They wouldn't recall exact.
0: What's the importance of, of getting those um, additional five offsets then? Well,
1: if you're running in, you might want a uh, rough offset initially to get your – because the INS, analog INS has drifted quite a bit. Uh, I mean, they were, ours were better than anybody else's, but they still had a tendency to drift. So you they repented on radar updates as you went along. So if you only had one offset capability, you either had to, sometimes we'd make an offset along the route, you know. But usually we wanted like two or three offsets in the target area. One to get you, make sure you're, that you knew you'd see for sure. That was large. You know, kind of a gross update. And then as you got in closer, that you might be updating, you might be looking at the tar- target area for 30 miles, you know. So you get, get a, another finer update closer in. And then when you get right into the target, get a, a final update on something close. So it's, it was nice to have several update capability. And it was all manual. I mean, we're sitting there cranking. And so we normally just set our one offset in on the ground because it's dark in the cockpit and everything. Uh, of course, later on, they had all kinds of, the digital mods for the other airplanes got uh, a lot more off- offset capability and you can pre-program it. But the A model was pretty basic. Just it was a step up from the F-4 because you could update it. You couldn't really update the F uh, INS in the F-4, I guess, too much. Go over, if you're right over the top of a point, you could update in the 111 also. Hmm. And if you had an identifiable point, and it was daylight. You could fly to it. Hit update. Everything run back. So you telling it that's a good update.
0: Hmm. Um, so it's is it? A, it's a busy cockpit then. And in-
1: yeah, it was pretty busy. Uh, yeah. And uh, first thing you did when you got the enemy territory, is you turned off the lights you're getting ready to go low level, you get, you know, you shut down, uh, all your squawking, whatever you're squawking, like, uh, IFF identification friend or foe. Uh, we would t- set up the ECM the way we wanted it. We actually found out <clears throat> that, uh, the best thing was not to transmit against Sam sites. Uh, Especially, uh, we, we were low enough that they really weren't a threat. And the only guys that had SAMs come close to them were guys that tried to jam them. Oh, really? Because you got to give away something when you jam. either giving away azimuth or you're giving away range. So the noise jammers just gives them a white spoke, you know, they know you're somewhere in it. They just don't know how far out you are. You, you don't have range.
0: Okay.
1: And Deception jammer puts up multiple targets, but they know you're on the outer ring of that. You can't make anything go. You can't get false targets further away than you are. You can get them closer, but you can't get them further away. At least yeah. in those days. So you got to give away. You don't want to use both of them together because then you give them a set of crosshairs. So you had to decide which one you're going to use.
0: Was that new to the F-111 then, or was that part of the quick reaction capability that the Air Force was sort of going through with regards to electronic warfare?
1: But you know, The 111 actually, I think, was about the first fighter to have built-in avion jamming capabilities. And they had a high, medium, and low bands of the ALQ-94, they called it. And I really liked the... ALQ-94, but the medium band, they never really, Soviets never developed anything to broadcast threat radar in the medium band. So it was there, and was never used. Uh, I kind of think the SAMs, when we tried to jam them with the Deception Jammer, it, it, it gave them too much information. Like I say, the only guys that had them come close to them were guys that tried to jam them. Now, the ALQ 94 high band was really good against a Big 21. And on the 27th of December, we were intercepted by a Big 21 or attempted interception. They had a system where they would call out uh, Bullseye, you know, Blue Bandit, Bullseye 270 at 35 miles, I think it was the call that day. And I looked at the map, and we had a Bullseye was Hanoi. And we had a map where we put east-west and north-south lines on it, and then we put rings on it. When they, I looked down, that was our exact point at that point. I looked up, two Big 21s went this way, but they were, you couldn't tell what airplanes they were. All you could tell is they ran around with their lights on so their own people wouldn't shoot them. <laughs> so one of them turned on us and uh, got a lock, actually. And I, the 94 high band just started speaking to him and you could see it walk him off the scope. And uh, what happened was we were, after that, we got, really got shot at that night. ZSU 23-4 and everything else. And so when we got over outside of the Delta in the mountains, we climbed up in kind of an MEA. That was just enough altitude for him to get a lock on us. So we just re-engaged TFRs and went back down and. When, when the ALQ-94 dropped him off, we were already low level again, so he wasn't a threat anymore. Wow. We just happened to be at the – he just happened to be at the right place at the right time to get a chance at us.
0: How, how do you think he saw you um, if you were lights out? I
1: think probably radar. Probably picked us the, – they probably steered him on us radar-wise, and then he picked us up with his radar once. Uh, okay. Once he turned on us. Okay.
0: Wow and 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 why were you being shot at so heavily that night then
1: uh you know it was december 27th. we were headed to Fukian airfield we came from uh east to west so that we would be pointed home when we were when we were <laughs> we didn't have to fly back around through any defenses other than what was in front of us just a lot of uh just a lot of uh people interested in shooting people <laughs> somebody started shooting everybody started shooting you know and it was kind of interesting. Uh, I'd never really seen it. They say we got shot at all the time, but it was awful close that night. And uh, someone told me beforehand that uh, if it's coming at you, when, when you see it fired, you're okay. But it was coming awful close because if they're shooting at you, you're going to be gone when the bullet gets there. Hmm. Never felt any we had guys feel the concussion of the shells going by the airplane. I never felt into that or anything. Some of the guys were just shooting too big of guns to really be a factory. 85 millimeter, you know, all that's for high altitude stuff. Hmm. Uh, you can kind of tell by the, by the frequency of the rounds, what caliber it was. But The ZSU 23.4 was impressive. That's a 23 millimeter quad mount with a radar. We didn't have anything to jam them. They were in the, they were in the J band. And we didn't have anything to jam them. I think that's right. Anyway, we didn't have a program to jam them.
0: And were they were they illuminating you then? So they were actually they were tracking you.
1: Well, we couldn't tell because that was really outside the sc- scope of our. We couldn't even detect them because it wasn't that that didn't come about till after they developed our ECM stuff. Hmm. I think with later mods you could have, but we didn't. At that point, have any way to detect them?
0: And, and so, did you have to? Did you have to maneuver if one of those was shooting at you to to sort of throw its aim off?
1: You know, it was it was right at our target, so we really couldn't maneuver. Yeah, in fact, we we knew about where he was, so we were trying to figure out whether it'd be better to fly over him or fly around him. And we just finally decided let's just fly right over him. Hope he can't raise his barrels up high enough to get us, hmm. but it came pretty darn close. <laughs>
0: and and that's a and that's a tracked vehicle as well isn't it so he he can move around um yeah he
1: can move around
0: did, did you know from intelligence prior to the the mission that he was going to be there
1: yeah uh we knew that he was there he, there was one at uh fukien and the other one was at kep i think airfield there was only two of them in country so it was uh it was an interesting problem <laughs>
0: What what were you, if it's not a silly question, what were you doing at the airfield? So you talked about Mark 82's, um, you know, retarded snake eyes being, was that what you were dropping?
1: Yeah, we were dropping Mark 82 at snake eyes. I think we dropped from 400 feet that night. We normally drop 500 feet. but We decided that threat was good enough. We'd go down another 100 feet. Some guys dropped at 200 feet uh, right downtown. Uh, I think most guys kept four to 500 feet, but you know, all of our, all of our guys that got hit and flew airplanes back were got hit with AK 47 rounds. Really? So we were just talking about that on the internet. A bunch of us were, somebody started a conversation with our group about the first six sorties and expanded into the whole time we were over there. And, uh, we went out to an airplane one night that had an AK-47 round in the tail feathers of the engine. And they tried to get it out and actually got the tail feathers all screwed up. So we had to go to a spare airplane. So, you know, low level wasn't the only thing we did over there. We did a lot of medium altitude stuff, too. more of that than we did anything else.
0: Just before you talk about that, can I just just ask them more about the, the airfield stuff? So, so were you trying to hit the runways? Were you trying to hit the aircraft? The um the person the the pilots?
1: Actually, we were trying to hit the communications center to take out the communications center. Okay. You know, we didn't really have any good weapons for at that point for taking out airfields. Uh, and I know. Like Yen Bai, they had a, one of our crews uh, was attacking Yen Bai and they turned the runway lights on to launch airplanes just as he was on short final. So he, he lined up right down the center line and dropped his bombs on the airplane, mostly just fought it, but could have got an airplane at the time. We don't know that for sure, but they did give us credit for, uh, closing down all the airfields and one of the big twenty ones, I think it was had to, the pilot had to bail out. He didn't have a place to land.
0: Really? Okay. So, and, and, and so from a pilot's point of view, it's, it is dark, uh, notwithstanding sort of cultural lighting or them turning the runway lights on. Um, what, what's the experience then of those bombs coming off the airplane? That's something that you can't actually see. I mean, I'm presuming you couldn't see the communication center.
1: No, we couldn't see, uh, anything. Uh, we just, had to do the best we could. When we first got there, that's another thing. Uh, we didn't have a radar film of the area. So we, they had what they called predictors, radar predictors, and they would draw you up a prediction of what your target, and your offset would look like. And they weren't very good at it initially. But once we got some radar film, they were able to draw better predictions. because. uh
0: so this, so this is part of your mission planning. So you're, you're trying to visualize what you're expecting to see on the radar scope when you point the radar at a piece of ground. What will it look like to help the wizard identify it ahead of time? Okay.
1: Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the Lakenheath crews, uh, one of them updated on what they thought would be a really noticeable pier from a radar prediction because they had no radar film again. And when they went switched over to Target with a, a pod, were visually looking at the target. They were nowhere near it. And they found out later there was another pier that was a ways away. And it showed up loud and clear, but the one that they thought would show up great didn't show up at all really? on the radar. So that's the kind of thing we ran into. And they kind of learned what would show and what wouldn't show as we got they got better. They got more radar film back to see how they're Predictions matched what what was actually there.
0: So, so, so w- with regards then to the, so you've said that you know those uh, those weapons needed you to be at 480 knots max, otherwise the fins would come off. But you know, famously, the F one eleven is very very fast at low level. Were you using that speed for the rest of the the trip? Um, were you supersonic?
1: We didn't. We had one crew drop Mark eighty four supersonic. They don't know if they hit anything or not. Uh But uh, normally, we didn't want to use afterburner because that just shows them where you are. So as soon as the bombs came off, we would put the throttles in military power and just see what we'd get. And about 590 was all the A model would get low level like that without afterburner. Uh, The D model... uh, that's one thing. When I went to the D model after flying A's and E's, I was surprised that the bill power, you can get over 600 knots pretty easy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the F model, of course, I've had guys tell me that they saw over a thousand knots low level. So you got know, one guy said he got a thousand ten. Another guy said, all I ever saw was eight ninety nine eighty six. 986. You know,
0: mm-hmm. so, Wow, well, uh, still fast.
1: Yeah, they're going, they were fast. And Nobody yeah. ever would let us set any records with the 111, so nobody knows how fast they go.
0: That was political?
1: Uh, I think it was not political so much as it was uh, the powers that be at Tactical Air Command didn't want to promote the 111. A lot of them didn't like it for some reason. Okay. And they wanted a single seat single pilot airplanes and McNamara forced them to get a two two place airplane. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, it was, they made several proposals to try and get, uh, uh, set records. Nobody had ever approved it. Uh, I know the, supposedly the F, uh, F model, they took it up to uh, Mach three once, and of course they did a lot of damage to the airplane. I don't know if you know it or not. The airplane had real no speed limit. Yeah, it was it was limit. all temperature limit. Yes, yeah. you could go 153 degrees uh, for five minutes or with a max 214C. So if you got the 214C, you had to slow down.
0: And that was that the the canopy temperature or the inlet temperature?
1: No, it was uh, had a lot to do with just, it was it's aluminum instead of titanium, because okay. they used aluminum honeycomb, uh, and that was just going to melt on you. <laughs> you know, if you get going, leave it too hot, too long.
0: Yeah. So, so we, we we we've gone off on a bit of a tangent, which is my fault really. But um, before we get back to talking about medium level bombing uh, in in Southeast Asia, um, that Mark III, um, I don't want to call it a story because you just said it happened. But do, do do you know the people that flew that saucy? You know,
1: all I got told was that it happened. I, okay. I uh, I've been told that by a couple of F model guys, but I have no firm proof of that. So. Okay. All right. That's all hearsay. No they chance. said it came back black, burned all the paint off, did some damage to the airplane. That's what I they told me.
0: Really? Do you know why they did it?
1: Now somebody just told me to go see if they could do it, and they'd accept accept the consequences. <laughs> wow. That that uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but the uh, F model had forty two percent more thrust than the A model. Hmm. Uh, A models were eighteen thousand. And the F model had 23, 3. But they were pressing the edge of the envelope there, and the airplanes spent a lot of time single engine. Really? The engine would come apart. And they kept tuning them back, trying to make them more reliable. Probably would have been a good idea to go with uh F one f like the F-16s had, 238 or something. Mm. Uh one of the problems we had over there was the radar altimeters were one of the weak links and a friend of mine died. They're pretty sure because the radar altimeter was frozen at 500 feet. It had a fail passive. In other words, the radar would, the altimeter would freeze at 500 feet and then you wouldn't get any warning. And, uh, then, if you decide to select a lower clearance plane, and there was no radar returns, such as land, you're over water. Well, they like to egress over water all the time, which I didn't like that. Because the Navy's out there, and they're they're good. So, uh, anyway, they went feet wet all the time, and their airplane washed up at Danang. I think it was about 30 days later, and they could tell that they had hit the ground. They hit the water uh, at a shallow angle, such as a TFR would give you. So you get no returns over water. It switches the radar altimeter. Radar altimeter says you're at 500 feet. The uh, set clearance plane on the TFR says you want to be at 200 feet, so it just starts a shallow descent trying to get 200 feet. And that was a mod, they, that was, they made a mod to that quite a few years later where it was a fail active. And the radar altimeter failed, it went to zero, and then you got a fly up because the 68% clearance plane. The other, did you uh, TFR, had if, if you descended below 68% in the fighter versions and the 82% in the FB, uh, it would give you a fly up. And then you could switch – if it's, if you think it's a TFR fault, then you could switch channels. The TFR, you had two of them, and uh, try it again. And if they're both down, then you climbed out, went home.
0: Why did the FB have a different limit?
1: Uh, I guess that's what SAC wanted. I don't know.
0: And that seems like a – a very interesting decision to make an engineering decision to make to have a passive fail on a system that's critical. Um, what-
1: we thought that was pretty dumb ourselves. Uh, I don't know what their reasoning was. I guess they figured most of the time you'd be over land and if you're in a hostile territory, you'd rather, you don't care what the radio, radar altimeter is doing. Mm. Uh, but we lost too many guys because of that. So they switched it
0: on on that um you already said that you turned off your IFF as part of your sort of fence checks but so you've got that big radar that's transmitting um in the nose of the aeroplane um so what the radars doing I guess is not that consequential but uh, was there a concern that they were able to listen out for those sorts of transmissions and and start to identify where that you were coming at least
1: uh, we didn't worry about that at the time i don't, i mean they they talked about putting your radar in standby but if you're uh, not, if you're a mountainous terrain, that's your backup to what's going on in front of you. And uh, the TFs can be misaligned. Uh, I had that happen one time, not on a combat sortie, but on a training sortie. Luckily, it was light enough out that we could tell what was going on. And uh,
0: can, you, can you, yeah, can you explain that?
1: Well, uh, they had worked on the TFRs on that particular airplane. And we're TFing and we're getting sixty-eight percent fly ups all the time, but the TFs are on. And so we figured it was looking in the wrong direction. And actually, we played with a tilt knob, which is not supposed to work in TFR. And we could we actually were managed to align the train following radar to our flight path and continued the mission. And then wrote it up and it was light enough out that at that time that we felt comfortable doing that. Normally we would have uh, gone home, you know. Uh, but then there's another thing was, uh, there was a tie-in check you could do, which killed a crew and we switched. If your TFRs were worked on, you could do a TF tie-in check. Maintenance was supposed to do it, but you could also do it on the ground right after they would worked on it. And after we lost a crew, we changed the procedure. And that was at Cannon. I'm guessing that was around 1980. We changed our uh, pre-flight procedures. It took about an extra two minutes, is all, to the left seaters. You know, you just played with the flight control switches, and they had to do certain things to show that they were tied into the TFR. Hmm. TFR worked off of series and parallel trim. That's what flew the airplane. Parallel trim had a lot of authority. Uh, series trim didn't. But it was just kind of an add-on. I mean, it just helped. Uh, this crew, what turned out to have happened was they had the TFRs worked on. They let down in a place where they had, it was kind of like a perfect storm. They were letting down. Over sloping terrain and so nothing looked out of ordinary but when they got the other end it was going straight up the, and they didn't have enough authority on the series trim to pull them out and the parallel trim wasn't working at all with the TFRs hmm. so it was uh, an unfortunate incident uh that taught us something about the airplane again, but it was a one in a million chance they let down exactly there. They had the exact problem that could kill them. The uh, experienced crew too, so it wasn't wasn't like it was an inexperienced crew didn't know what was
0: going on. Was this at night?
1: Uh, it was at night. Yes. Okay.
0: So they didn't. They wouldn't have known what was about to happen. They
1: didn't know until it was too late. Yeah. yeah. Then they didn't have any. Manual authority to pull them out, even by the time they time they discovered something was wrong. Hmm.
0: So, so back to um, medium altitude.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Uh, we were flying low level in North Vietnam, and they wanted uh, some way. They had a way for us to uh, drop medium altitude on a lot of these targets in Laos, where they're. North Vietnamese were attacking Laotian government and also crossing uh, Laotian soil, transporting supplies to the south. And uh, the beacon each had a code. And what happened was there was a guy on the ground who would have this beacon, and he was a U.S. Special Forces or something. And he would uh, find a target, he'd position his beacon, and then he'd give you a range and bearing to the target. And he'd tell you which beacon he had, they all had different codes on the radar. Um, Show different strobes, of course you aimed at the closest strobe. And it was a little, he had to reverse the direction he gave you. So if he gave you a, 142, you had to have add 180 to it, became 340, I see, 122. <laughs> anyway, you had to reverse the direction, yeah. but keep the distance the same, because he's given it from his point to you, but you had to go from target to your system, look at the target back to the system. And <clears throat> anyway, you'd, he'd turn it on and you'd count the strobes and their separation. They all had little codes. And uh, if, if the code matched what he told you he had, then you'd drop on the beacon using offset. That was actually very effective. But uh, they were worried about us dropping on friendlies. So they uh, had only our experienced, most experienced crews doing that. And the young crews were all up bombing up north. <laughs> it was kind of, it's a, this is so easy to do. Why, why can't we all do it? And then when they called a bombing halt, because every time they thought that uh, the North Vietnamese were going to be realistic and negotiate, they'd call a bombing halt. And they called a bombing halt, so we started all doing that, dropping off beacons in uh, Laos. And the weather was bad. We would uh, take F-4s and A-7s also. So we had a whole new set of ballistics for each airplane that was up there. And uh, we'd sit up there in orbit. Sometimes we have to refuel. That's really one of the few times we had to refuel was waiting for picking up F-4s and A-7s. Sometimes you might take three or flights into different targets. They'd give you their target coordinates and tell you what bombs they had. We'd set those ballistics into our computer. And then we would uh, fly in with them on our wings, and we'd call a countdown. Mm-hmm. There were some interesting things that happened with that. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to count down for you. Some guys went. okay, three, two, one, ready and drop now. And got bombs spread all over because <laughs> <laughs> some guys didn't drop at zero, some guys dropped on, ready, some dropped on now. So we had to standardize the. We had to standardize our uh, terminology for everybody. But the weather was so bad sometimes that these other airplanes, the only way they could drop was dropping our wing because they had no no way of dropping.
0: So, so this was like a, a, an F 111s version of Sky Spot. I mean, that's
1: yeah, exactly. Okay, except it was more accurate because you know they're running you out on attacking or and telling you when to drop off radar or something
0: what was your your sort of circular error probable and what was your your sort of hit distance because because you've got wind aloft you've got sort of low altitude winds and all those variables so even if you've got great ballistics um
1: that's a good question i don't know that they ever i i think we were better than anybody else now what the actually some of the greatest fireworks i saw was when we had dropped uh on an altitude target one night uh Went out, put the coordinates in, and dropped on an alternate target, kind of a, uh, you know, dump box, fly out the, we lost our system, fly out the and radio, so many miles, and pickle your bombs off. Yeah, we got some great secondaries that night. We must have hit something. So, but I think we only dropped twice on dump boxes, where we did, not lost our systems and dumped on targets. Uh, rather than that, we were, it was pretty reliable system. Actually, I, we aborted once for weather out of 75 missions and, uh, twice for systems. And I don't think they believed us on the system. We were flying TFR and the TFR scope just went blank. Tac radar was working fine. Just as soon as we started pulling, the TFR scope came back on. We went back down, TF for a little bit, and uh, TFR scope went blank. So the third time we went blank, we just said, okay, we're going to leave. We went back and, and uh, dropped uh, on an on a alternate target. Uh, they put a really experienced crew <laughs> uh, uh, with the airplane the next night, and they came back the same way. It, well, you really did have something go wrong because they didn't—they didn't couldn't find anything wrong with the airplane when they tested it. So they kind of thought we were uh, scared or something, I guess. Anyway, they they did find a problem with it, fixed it, and the airplane had no more trouble. Uh, we went to Cambodia later, you know, after the they stopped the bombing about the thirtieth of December or something like that. And we had a couple of weeks off and then we started bombing in Cambodia against the Camber Rouge. We lost six airplanes while we were there, while I was there. Uh our squadron ops officer was killed. They, they they're pretty sure the Navy shot them down. They went feet wet. Really? Uh there's no I have no proof of that. Uh Word hat was that the Navy finally admitted it once they were able to hide who was the crew and that shot them down.
0: So, so that was a Navy fighter, so not Navy ship.
1: No, Navy ship. Oh, okay. Uh, we lost another crew feet wet. The one I told you about before with the, we're pretty sure it was radar altimeter malfunction. Uh because the other crew went. Our ops officer called feet wet. He was out over the water. And then he never showed up again. Uh, we lost one trying to semi toss Mark 84s. That was uh, the other squadron. And they lost one right downtown on the, I think they were dropping on the docks, Hanoi docks. Uh, they actually, when they came off target, they got a fire light and they pushed a the fire button. And they kept flying TFR low level and they got, uh, they said, we've been hit, you know, the guy told his whistle that he would been hit. He said, yeah, I know. And he, the whistle said later, he looked out to the right side of the airplane. And the whole airplane was on fire on the right side. And, uh, they punched out and then they separated. And, uh, Aircraft commander was captured after three days, pony Barger. And Bill Wilson was captured about eight days later, I think. And they tried to drop supplies to him, but he had gone the wrong way. They they had these things like go from your house to uh, some place, you know. Well, he went, he went from his house at home where he grew up to that place. And it was the opposite direction. They made his house in Vegas. So, and then the SE, we lost, oh, we lost one crew uh, out of our squadron. We lost four crews out of our squadron. Lost one uh, where most people aborted that night because the weather was so bad. Everybody was climbing out saying uh, they got scope blanking on both uh, scopes. So they aborted and that crew didn't come back. They were, inex- they were a wing staff crew. So they didn't have as much time flying in the weather and stuff. The rest of us. They probably flew once a week or something, you know. The mm-hmm. rest of us were flying every other day. Mission planning. Was, I'll tell you what, this, was, this always kind of interested me. They would plot all the targets on a board had a map of North Vietnam up there. They plotted all the targets. And then that either the squadron commanders or the ops officers, they varied every day. Uh, one day that if the if a squadron commander was flying and he would pick the targets for your squad, he had placed the targets for your squadron. But the two squadron commanders or the two ops officers would go on there and they would divide the targets up 50, 50. And, uh, then they would assign targets to individual crews. And one of the things that impressed me, and I learned a lot from that, was uh, the first night of linebacker two, our squadron commander picked the toughest target for himself. And then after that, it was never any problem in our squadron because squadron commander had already taken the toughest target first night. What was the, target? the uh it was right downtown. I don't remember what target it was, but I remember it was uh it was the closest one to downtown that he took for himself. Uh, the other squadron commander took took the one that was out the furthest from downtown. And uh, I always thought their squadron never really uh, they had more trouble, I think, after that than we we never had any trouble with our crews not wanting to do something. That was a big lesson in leadership. I thought
0: did that, um, it, you know, did, did you see any of that? I've read a few, you know, I've read, you know, sort of, um, you know, Ed Rasmus's F F one five books and, um, you know, Jack Broughton and, and various other, you know, Vietnam sort of era sort of books. And, um, you know, there are some references to guys who didn't want to fly, you know, who only sort of wanted to fly the easy missions or whatever. Um did you see any of that then, you know, in your in your squadron and, and how did how how do you handle that?
1: Uh, actually our squadron I never saw any of that. The other squadron had several incidences of that. In fact, one of their guys just said I'm not after after he lost his second friend, he said I'm not gonna fly anymore. And everybody's dad over who was a colonel said, tried to talk him into going back to fly on him. he just no, I'm done. Uh, there was a couple incidences that we heard about that where guys had INS failure was reaching over and turning the INS off when the guy wasn't looking really? or crew got sick. You know, one of the crew members got sick whenever they had a really tough target. So, but I, that was kind of an interesting uh, lesson to watch. A friend of mine, he was gung-ho to go. He always liked to imitate John Wayne. And uh, we got over there and I was really surprised. Uh, he was the guy that had bothered the most going on the assorties, but he always went and he always did his job. And we had a guy that didn't want to go at all. And he ended up wanting to extend. You know, he had so much, he enjoyed it so much over there. So you didn't really know till you got there what your what your reaction was going to be. You had guys that were obviously scared shitless, but they went out and did their mission, their job every time. Never had any question about whether they were doing their job. Uh, me, the worst time was looking at the targets and not knowing which one was yours. Once they gave you one, it didn't bother me anymore for some reason. You just got down to business and did it. Uh, But there was a whole range of emotions of
0: guys. Uh, So so how did, I mean, were you scared?
1: Was I scared? Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, actually my first North mission was when we first started doing them right at the beginning. My second one, I think it was. We had a TF fly up and we had everybody in the world looking at us. And uh, that was probably the one one time I got scared, and I realized that that was causing me closer to getting dying than the, the other threats that we were looking at. And after that, it never bothered me. I don't know why. Just me. Uh, I wanted to do something right in that first mission, and luckily, uh, sanity prevailed, and... I realized afterwards that what I was looking at was less dangerous than trying to violently react to it. Hmm. You know, probability of kill was grounds one hundred percent. Everything else is less than
0: that. What's the, um, the the process sort of mentally then for for being um, involved in a war where so many aircrew and you know fighter pilots in particular are dying and and being shot down every day. I mean, how, you know, you're already in a, in a dangerous line of work, and and especially at that time, you know, tactical fast jet aviation was uh, a very dangerous thing to to be doing. Still is, but you know, particularly then. Um, but but how do you how do you get your head around the fact that there's all these guys going out there and and and, and a bunch of them are not going to come back tonight?
1: You know, uh, they had to stop doing TFR after that. We lost the one airplane low level for a while and we start, uh, and we were all mad. Like I was, most guys were actually mad that, Hey, we can't stop doing this just because we lose crews. uh, which looking back on it is probably kind of a surprising deal. And, uh, when we are doing the high altitude stuff in Laos and even Southern North Vietnam, uh, we knew that eventually we we're going to go back low level. So we started actually flying low level on our return, fly low level in Thailand. They had routes set up to go fly low level. So we were preparing to go back, but I I think most of the crews wanted to keep going. Once they started giving us decent targets and uh, help the war effort, get it over with. Uh, I I did very little guys were really uh glad to stop I think it, I you're all a team I guess and uh reinforce each other
0: what what about um uh so i i mean there, i've got two questions really just so one relates to the crew you were talking about a minute ago you said they split up and i'd, I'd really like to understand why why you'd split up because i would have thought if sandy's going to come and get you it's easier for them to come and get you both at the same time then but anyway but but what what are, what were your views on um surviving uh um you know a successful ejection and then surviving to escape and, and evade um i mean i I'd, I'd sort of read um years and years ago so i can't remember the source that there was some talk about you know f-111 crews being prized and being sent you know potentially being sent to moscow for intelligence value and interrogation and there is an f-111 capsule that's in a museum in moscow um maybe moscow
1: i think it's pony barger and wilson's capsule
0: uh
1: <laughs> they said that they they decided that they were going to Everything on the left side of the airplane, the aircraft commander is going to handle everything on the right side that the other guy was going to handle. He said that was a big mistake because the guy on the right side, he he got all the tough questions because that's where all the raws and ECM was. <laughs> that's what they wanted to know about. I don't know. You know, the other guy's going, I don't know about any of that stuff. That's all him. <laughs> yeah. And so he had a pretty easy time of it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think we had it a, they knew they were alive because they were talking to them so I think it's pretty unrealistic they would have sent them away knowing that they were alive they did send the capsule up to them I guess and, uh, I really didn't feel like we had a too bad of a situation if we ejected you know if you, if you eject on the delta you're probably not getting away because there's just too many people looking for you. If you could get out out a ways, uh, you had a better chance. Uh, Wilson was actually reaching for the penetrator when they shot the helicopter up, and the helicopter had to fly away, and they Christ-landed in Laos, and the other backup helicopter picked them up and brought them back. So when we heard that they... uh, that rescue helicopter had crashed. We thought maybe that they were, had picked him up, and that, but they didn't make it all the way back. They, they made a controlled Christ landing, you might say, in Laos. And the other helicopter swooped in and picked him up. So, it was, we never really gave it too much thought, I don't think. You know, we all had our, we carried, we carried 38s. And we, they, the rescue people said, take, take tracers and 38 probably ain't going to help you much for uh, shooting your way out of any situation. But if you shoot tracers at us, uh, you're probably not going to hit us. And then we know where you're at. Uh, When uh, Marquardt and uh, Hodges ejected in Thailand, in the first deployment, when they hit the ground, they go, uh, "We're in Thailand." And the other guy goes, "No, we're in, we're in Laos." No, we're in Thailand. No, we're in Laos. Well, they were, you know, getting pretty close to the border there, and they're trying to decide what to do. And all of a sudden, people start shooting at them. They think, so they're seeing tracers, and uh, so they take off running. They stay together. They said they ran around for over an hour. And then they ran smack dab into something. People weren't shooting at me anymore. Well, they ran back and hit the capsule. Ran a big circle. (laughs) Came right back to the capsule. And uh, anyway, pretty quick, a helicopter came in. And so they're sitting there with, uh, uh, they had a little speaker you could attach to the thing. And you put an earpiece in so you didn't transmit. You couldn't hear your radio. And they're sitting there whispering into this little microphone. And finally, the helicopter turns on its searchlight and says, speak up. You're in Thailand. (laughs) And it turns out, what happened was the ammo in the 20-millimeter cannon was cooking off. And... In actuality, the uh, tracers they were seeing were fireflies. Right. So, you know, they were, they were hyped up on adrenaline. And uh, the ammunition cooking off of the fireflies was tracers. So they used to love to tell that story when they get drunk. But uh, they got picked up and taken back home. We talked about them burying the airplane before.
0: So, so there wasn't uh, there really wasn't then any uh, sort of you know price on your head as an f111 pilot uh, not
1: that, not that I knew of uh, I'm sure they'd love to have captured as many as they could hmm. learned more about the airplane uh, the f-111s have all had to be destroyed if they aren't in museums the Aussies buried theirs yeah why is that salt treaty it was oh. the only fighter aircraft mentioned in the salt Treaty
0: Oh, uh, okay. So that's the strategic arms limitation talks.
1: Yes. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they uh, they put a stipulation in there that they had to be destroyed. They couldn't be kept stored forever. Oh, and yeah. uh, I went down to see the 111 stored at Tucson there, where they were at Davis-Montham Air Force Base. And we couldn't see them that day because I'd driven by before and seen them in the distance. But I did the tour, and they wouldn't let us in to see the 111s because the Russians were there and they were cutting up B-52s. That was the other airplane that they they had to physically just chop them into like three pieces. The B-52s. They had a exhibit row there where they had all the one of one or two of all the airplanes that they had in the the depot there. They had out on a line so you could drive by and see them. Normally they would take you in and look at all the airplanes
0: parked. So so you 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 mentioned two things um, that are sort of uh, of interest. So one is the twenty millimeter twenty millimeter cannon in the in the airplane. So that was um, you know not continued later into the airplane's life, was it? It didn't they didn't carry on carrying that. But is is that correct?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, In fact, at Upper Hayford, we start we started installing a few of them for a bomb competition, and we actually came in second behind the A7s. And I was supposed to do that, but they upgraded me to IP at that point. And uh, I couldn't do both. We were short of IPs. And uh, later I was supposed to do a gun sortie. And I went. Out, we went off the airplane and it broke. So we went out and did a simulated strafing sortie with one that didn't have a gun in it. And uh, then the next week, you safety told us to take all the guns back out so i never got never actually got to shoot the gun that's something i wish i could have done uh,
0: so you didn't you didn't shoot it in vietnam then?
1: no uh, we had we had the guns in vietnam but we didn't use them uh, you're, okay. you're at night and you're we didn't didn't do any daytime sorties low level
0: right uh, so the, the the second thing then is that is the nuclear mission of the airplane um did, did you, you know, as, as a security measure, did, did the crews that went to Southeast Asia not have that sort of nuclear training then? Um, or did you go through the whole thing and then you went there anyway?
1: Actually, that's kind of a funny story. Uh, we went, we were checking out. We didn't have enough crews because they flushed a bunch of uh, pilots into the, trying to get them a Vietnam sortie for the war quit. They were thinking in 1970, the war might quit. Now airplanes are grounded. So they took a bunch of young pilots and they sent them off to uh, Southeast Asia in O-1s, O-2s, O-V-10s. So the squadrons were all depleted when we got there. And uh, so they, we were checking this out, trying to fill up the squadrons. And uh, they came down and said, "Hey, we got 90 days Warning this year, 98 warning you're going to war. So they took as many mission ready crews as they could out of uh, 428th and put them in the 429th and 430th. And they designated anybody in your class, you're going to be, uh, they took us, we're going to send anybody that wouldn't be ready in time to go, sent them to the 428th to check out. my class was split in half so they said hey uh, we're looking for three volunteers and if you don't volunteer we're going to pick names okay I'm not volunteering Uh, who wants to volunteer to go be shot at right so but if you tell me to go I'll go so I turned out to be number four and so the day after they picked they came to me my flight commander came to me and said we really want you to volunteer to go I said, why? Well, one of the other guys is coming in and begging on his knees not not to go. He doesn't want to go. So I said, tell you what, you tell me to go and I'll go. I'm not volunteering. I said, I didn't know this was a volunteer organization. (laughs) So they said, oh, okay, you're going. I said, okay, I'm going. That's how I got involved. That's how I got in the first group, Uh, which I'm glad I did. Now experience I'll I'll never forget. And so we got paired with another guy that's in training and they checked us out as quick as they could. And just before the nine days is up, they said, oops, we're not, you're not going. We canceled it. So everybody started taking leave and headed out. My wife and kids flew to home to take a vacation because we hadn't been allowed to take any. And I had to go to a bomb commander school, which we learned about nukes for the first time. So we're in bomb commander school and they're teaching us all about B-43s and B-57s and And, uh, B-61s. We take lunch and they go, it's back on. So they cancel bomb commander school. So I never went any nuclear training before other than a half a day before. And, and uh, we packed up and uh, we actually, I checked out and we checked out and with another guy at that point came in and needed one of our guys got uh penicitis. He went, he, he was on an airplane to go home, but he got penicillitis and they had to carry him off the airplane. And uh, so his crewmate needed to be checked out. And uh, anyway, we, I checked out with him, and then, uh, with that thirty-day delay, actually he got back. He got back on. He talked to him, talked to Squadron into taking him, and he went over. And uh, we still keep in touch. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, very limited nuke training at at Nellis in the A model. You had to do the bare minimum. Learn how to pre flight them and uh, stuff. Of course, you got the Upper Hayford, and then a totally different situation.
0: Well, we can hopefully talk about Upper Hayford in your next, uh, well, in our next session.
1: Okay. Yeah, I got a funny story about my first time on alert there.
0: Okay. Hold, hold that thought. Yeah, I will do. I will do. So, 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 Brad, how many hours did you have uh, in the F one eleven when you turned up? Um, uh, and we sort of skipped over a little bit of, of the less interesting detail, like where were you based? You were in um, Thailand, was it?
1: Uh, tak Lee. Uh, Thak we Lee. were over there the first time. Yeah. And that base had been closed. The F 4s had come in from uh, Da Nang, I think, because they were moving uh, airplanes out of South Vietnam. <clears throat> and the 49th Fighter Wing came into Tak Li. And, uh, of course, that was a long way for them. Thak Lee was part this base from North Vietnam. And they didn't have the legs to, to refuel pre and posts. Mm-hmm. They moved them up to, uh, I think it was a triple nickel. I think they moved them up to Udorn, which is closer. Uh, and w- we were taking them place. And one of the guys that went through pilot training was actually – there. When I got there, he was uh, F4s. Uh, we flew from Nellis to Hawaii Hickam and we were supposed to spend the night a, a whole day in Hickam recovering. And then we we're going to fly to the Philippines the next day. And we got, we got off the airplane. We landed and crawled out of the airplanes. Uh, they told us first thing that we lost an airplane, one of our crews, Coltman and Lefty Brett. And uh, <clears throat> they said, and you're leaving in the morning. And I had some friends in Hawaii, my roommate's family. So I, I had planned to spend the day with them. So anyway, we went out. She bought me a cake, some famous Hawaiian cake. It was coconut uh, in the frosting. So I got this whole cake, carried it on the airplane with me. And never had a mega cake having made a 11-hour flight before on an airplane without a bathroom. I brought along a six-pack of Coke because I love Coke. I learned real quick you don't want to drink a six-pack of Coke on an 11-and-a-half-hour flight. And you're in the airplane an hour before you take off. So you're really about 12-and-a-half hours. We flew from uh, Hickam to Clark. We got to Clark, and they told us to fly out, I think, like the 290 radio for 100 miles. We've well, no, we were, we'd been flying for 11 hours. We want to land. No, fly out the radio. We went out there. We got out there, and they had us hold. And it uh, turned out you couldn't land at Clark unless you had emergency fuel because they had a typhoon hit Vietnam, and all the airplanes from Vietnam were diverting into Clark. Mm. And so they had they had people stacked in the holding pattern out there on the radial about from 10,000 up to 39,000 feet, I think. Wow. Finally, one of our guys declared emergency fuel and we went in, or declared min fuel, I think. We went in and we went through initial three times before we got emergency fuel. So uh, initial, of course, you just come down, pitch out. We were in flights of three. Well, actually, we had two. We had two three ships flying on the trail. So we we can't we called initial came through. They told us to go around because somebody declared an emergency. And third time we ha- we were all emergency fuel. So we all landed then.
0: Just talk uh, a little bit about, that, about the legs of the airplane because I think it was the the F1 was the first fighter to be able to fly across the Atlantic under fuel, wasn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, they yeah. flew from. I I can't think of the guy, Palmer, maybe? Uh, I talked to him, actually, one time about that. And they had weapons bay tanks. They took the gun out, put two weapons bay tanks in. They bolted on. uh, They had wingtip extensions you could bolt on. Did they? Okay. And made made the wings the same as the FB wings. The wing FB wings were a foot and half, eighteen inches longer. Yeah. So they bolted those on, and they took off, and they were flying in trail with uh, a tanker. They flew all the way across with a tanker, and he said that they were in the pre-contact position on the tanker all the way till. Near landing because they didn't know if they're going to have enough gas. They landed at Paris for the air show. Okay. And uh, they, uh, I don't know how much fuel they landed with, but I think it was like 1,500 pounds, which isn't a lot for a emergency fuel. Was, uh was 1,500. Uh, they probably were at just below emergency fuel. But he said they didn't know if they were going to make it all the way across. But they did, when they flew the e-models to Upper Hayford, they were launching, I think they launched off the east coast of Canada, like Newfoundland or something. They flew all the way across. Uh, Because I talked to some guys that did it. I'm not sure if they had the wingtip extensions on or not. I only flew a few times with the weapons bay tanks. Uh, We had them. Yeah, we had a wing commander one time that said, "If we ever going to use these things, we need to practice with them." So we did it. And but it gave you a real forward CG center of gravity, so you had to empty them first.
0: Yeah, because th- th- those extensions were were to carry extra fuel, weren't they? Um, is that is that correct?
1: The wingtip extensions were just to give you more lift, okay, more range. And it, I, it was, I guess, they were pretty amazing. They got a fair amount of range out of those but we would refuel off of uh, Labrador uh, and we could fly all the way to Europe all the way to uh, Upper Hayford from there without refueling it again you've got a jet stream behind you you know mm. coming the other way sometimes it was it refueled quite a few times
0: so, so just finally then I think just to talk about the, the Vietnam experience. Um, you, you were you were obviously then a young guy because we sort of skipped the whole sort of preamble talking about how you got into the Air Force. We, we, we sort of um, you know, went straight to Vietnam. But how many hours did you have in the airplane?
1: Uh, funny thing, you had to have 100 hours to fly combat in the airplane. Well, you had about 80 when you got through training. So a lot of people had to fly over there I got over there with 120 hours. I actually had right at 100 when we left, but my crewmate only had 80. So I had 120 when we landed in Toxley, and he had 100.
0: Wow. Did you feel, did that make you feel vulnerable? Or did the, the, the fact you were young offset that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the case, because uh, that's really not much time. But, uh, I think we were bulletproof at that age. I was, that was 72. I was, I was 24 when we got there. So, and I looked really young in those days. I don't look young now, but, uh, I mean, I was on an airplane and we were getting ready to go. Two little old ladies sit beside me and they said, you're in the air force. I'm like, yeah. And I said, I'm just getting ready to go to Vietnam. And they go, No, uh, they just couldn't believe it. The other funny story that I had about that, I was the youngest guy in our group. Uh, When I say youngest guy, I was the junior lieutenant, uh, data rank-wise. And uh, so I was the guy that would go pick up all the mail for everybody. So I run into the squadron on, I think it was a Sunday. And, uh, I ran in, grabbed the mail and we, we wouldn't unlock the boxes. We just go around inside the mail room and pull them out the backside for everybody, you know? So I'm in the squadron, pulling the mail out for everybody. And I turn around and run into general clay. Cause I exit, exit the room, mail room. Oh, sorry, sir. <laughs> and, uh, He's the only guy I saw. And I'm like, he looks at me and he goes, you're not flying combat sorties for me. Are you? And about that time, the squadron commander stepped through the door behind him and said, Oh yes, sir. He's got the most, most combat missions right now. And he looked at me and he shook his head. And I, I thought I could just see him thinking I'm sending babies off to war. <laughs> but, uh,
0: did you say you got you got 77 missions? Did you say was that I
1: had, I had 75. Our lead crew had 77. And they were both schedulers. And we had the most missions. And all of a sudden we got set down for a couple of days, you know. <laughs> I wondered what was going on. Well, the schedulers wanted to have the most missions, and we left there. So they ended up getting two more sorties than I did.
0: You 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 mentioned earlier that the the first time you were sort of lit up by a Sam, you know, you, you realized that it was personal. That it was it was taking aim at you. Was that the the most uncomfortable in those seventy five missions that you were? Was there were there any other moments that really stand out to you as you would not want to have to do that again?
1: Uh probably the most dangerous thing that happened to us was actually that time the TFRs got blanked out. We had to climb up. That was probably the most scary. Uh, Amazingly getting shot at by all those guns was kind of like it was happening to somebody else. You know, you're looking out there going, ha ha, you missed me. Uh, For some reason, that didn't bother me at all. Now, the first time a Sam lit me up, that was probably this. That was probably the time I was the most scared in the airplane. And that was the time I probably shouldn't have been. Probably the most dangerous thing we did, though, was that climb out of low level with the radar blanking. Uh, my daughter used to say, oh, you know, I, I was worried about you Yeah, flying even years later. And I said, the old clothes of combat missions I was all worried about. I said, you know, I've been closer to being killed in peacetime than I ever was, wartime probably.
0: Really,
1: Just near misses with airplanes and stuff like that.
0: Oh. well i'm looking forward to exploring that with you okay absolutely so 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 so, so final question because it's a typical me i say last question and i have more but but this is the last question then um what, what did you what did you as a young guy then get out of the 75 combat missions that time spent in linebacker 2 and then and thereafter what, what did you walk away from that experience with as a tactical aviator
1: uh you know I think one thing it did is it taught me that you're not to, not necessarily going to die Uh somebody's shooting at you. And a friend of mine said, just remember, it's not personal. They're not shooting at you. They're shooting at the airplane. But uh, I think just realize, realizing that you're not necessarily going to die when somebody's shooting at you. Keeping it, keep it cool and calm, it's probably going to save you 90-some percent of the time. And pure luck is the other thing that's going to save you. I mean, there's a silver bullet out there. Whether it gets you or somebody else, is all uh, just a matter of luck. And I, I think I, I became kind of, uh, when it's your time, it's your time, you know, fatalistic. Mm-hmm. If it's not your time, it doesn't matter whether you're flying combat mission or driving to work. Had a good friend of mine. I swear he drove drunk all the time. And yeah, he was always doing stuff stupid. How does he get killed? He gets killed when he's 58 years old, driving to work, hit by a drunk driver. And he's gonna go fly for, he's flying for FedEx. He just getting ready to go on a mission to FedEx early in the morning and gets hit by a drunk driver and killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the times that he did all those things and never got a scratch, it was just his time that day. I think.
0: Did it make a I difference? Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. I mean, I've, I've sort of got a part B, which is, you know, uh, to, to the question, which is, did, did it make a difference having somebody in the right seat there, um, you know, did, uh, added responsibility, or, um, you know, you're, you can take, um, yeah, courage is courageous, is what they say, isn't it, uh, sort of, you know, contagious rather, not courageous, contagious.
1: I suppose, that, you know, if, if the guy on the other seat is comfortable. It works. I know uh, talking to, uh, listen to some of the tapes from the Libya raid. <clears throat> the guy in the left seat had been with us in Takli, Lee and uh, the guy in the right seats getting excited and he's going, Hey, I see all that. Just get your head back in the scope and do your job. <laughs> you know, And I think, and, and that's the guy actually that hit those three airplanes on the ramp. Once he got calmed down a little bit, somebody, you know, somebody is sitting there going, worked all right. (laughs) Go back to work. (laughs) It worked okay. And just for full disclosure, when you came out of pilot training, you went into the right seat of the 111 in those days. So a P-Wizzle. Yeah, P-Wizzle. And uh, about a third of us were P-Wizzles. And then we went back to Nellis, checked out in the left seat and came back over but the war had ended by then, but we just sat there and flew training missions, uh, until, you know, just in case North Vietnamese broke the treaty, mm-hmm. which by the time they did, I was back over at upper Hayford. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one thing interesting about arriving at upper Hayford, we had a well-known one Oh five guy that was a Nellis when I was there and can't think of his name right now. I just had it the other day. Um, he was a squadron commander and he, my squadron didn't send anybody to meet me when we got in. So he picked me up and he knew me from Nellis and he goes, you're a captain. And I said, yeah, why? And he goes, well, never had a Lieutenant flying left seat at 111s in Europe. And your order said, uh, Lieutenant. So they didn't know if they're going to let you fly or not. <laughs> and I said, I made. Uh, he's, I said, yeah, I made captain en route. So I made captain like a month before I got there. But once I was a captain, it was okay. Nobody ever questioned it. But I was a junior captain the whole time I was at Upper Haven, the first tour. So I got all the details on alert and stuff. <laughs> well. If they need somebody to do something, the junior aircraft commander, junior WISO got to go do it. So I was always the junior guy until just before I left.
0: (laughs) I think on that, Brad, let's, uh, um, call it a day for, for this interview. And, uh, we look forward to picking up with you on the next one.